Pavlik, and I'm here with basically an all-European cast today to talk about Bazaar of Moxon and uh, kind of what went down and everybody's experiences. So today I'm joined by three guests. So first one is Julian, who we ha- who we've had on the cast before. Hey, everyone. So then the next person is Mark. So Mark, if you want to introduce yourself. Hello, I'm Mark Barrow on Twitch and Medigonline. And then our last and final guest is Jean-Marie Eckhart, uh, fame of uh, GP Paris and second place finish at the most recent Bazaar Moxon. So, hi everyone. Yeah. So, uh, so first we're going to start off with everybody's kind of Bazaar Moxon deck choices and their finish and kind of any particular uh, innovating that anybody did and their experience. So, Julian, if you want to start us off. Yeah, um, I guess no big surprise. I was playing Elves at the Bazaar of Moxen, unfortunately it didn't go as well as the last one. And if there's anything you want to know about my list, I guess it's mostly for the sideboard, because I was expecting a lot of miracles. I actually decided to play some more grindy, long game oriented cards in the sideboard to also to also stay in the chance against most of the other grindy decks like Chant, which I expected, and... Yeah, maybe even some kind of back control. So from the standard sideboard, you most of you guys know, I actually added a Sylvan Library as well as a Surgical Extraction because my reasoning was that Surgical, surgical Extraction is awesome against Miracles if you manage to hit the Terminus because most of the time when playing Elves, the first Terminus isn't as like devastating as the second or third one. So with the knowledge of no Terminus left in their deck, it's actually a pretty easy matchup. And it should work, but of course only one one surgical extraction isn't going to be enough. So what I'm looking at right now is increase the number of planeswalkers in the elf sideboard, as I tried before but never really got around to test. And yeah, so that's that's for my deck choice. For the main event, it's pretty anticlimactic. I had two buys. Uh, first round, I pl- actually the first round I played, which was the third round, I played against Miracles. I lost the first game. Second game, I get down Nilrod and Pithing Needle, naming Chase, which is pretty good. But he naturally flips Terminus, which happens, I guess. And uh, naturally flips Angels, which <laughs> also happens, and I just lose. Uh, the following rounds, <laughs> the following rounds, I kind of get destroyed by what I consider one of the breakout cards of the tournament, which is Toxic Deluge. I played against a dedicated Toxic Deluge control deck, which seems pretty good against elves, and it just destroyed me. I mean, even if you get down Progenitus, paying 10 life isn't that much of a problem if you can't get early beats in. And yeah, so I play Cable Therapy on turn 2, name Toxic Deluge, hit, flashback for Cage. Next turn he top decks Envelope for my natural order, I guess that happens. Uh, The turn after he rips Toxic Deluge again, and I'm pretty much out, so... It's kind of sad because I expected more of the tournament, but well, that's just how it goes sometimes. You just wanted to back-to-back win. And well, at least I wanted to do well, considering that it's 10 rounds and I had two buys. It would have been much easier to top 8 again than last time, but I guess... I I don't know. I don't, I don't want to say I, I hang on to elves too much. I still believe it's pretty good, but right now the meta is, is very hostile, and maybe I should have chosen a different deck. When you say you want to play more Planeswalkers, you are to- thinking about Garruk Relentless? Garuk, yeah, actually that was like one of my first choices, but I feel that Garruk Relentless might not be good enough in what he does. I In the side events, later I tried um, Garruk, oh my god, 
Primal Hunter, I guess, which was 5 mana. And there was actually a problem of not being able to cast Garok Primal Hunter most of the time. So what I'm looking at is right now is actually Garok Wildspeaker, the very first one. Uh, because the ultimate is pretty good. The plus one ability is okay. Yeah, with, with Cradle. And the minus one ability is okay against Miracles. So even though I would much rather try Liliana, double black is pretty hard. And yeah, so I want to try Wildspeaker. And it's good with Cradle sometimes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, oh, was uh, Surgical, by the way? Well, I played in the in some of the trials and later in the smaller tournaments against Miracles, and I hit like sec the second entry, the Angels or Terminus, and it was actually pretty good. But the problem is, of course, only having one is not very reliable, so I would at least have to go up to two, and then you're running pretty low in space in the sideboard anyways. But Would you have to think use about it on that. a fetch land to, to play a Cabal Therapy? I play what? Would you use it on a fetch land to play Cabal Therapy optimally? Uh, I don't... I guess I don't think so. Unless I'm playing against combo, like show and tell, and I really have to hit, otherwise... Um, I guess I don't. Okay. Okay, so with Julian, you're kind of done. Then we can move on to Mark. All right. My Bizarre Maximum experience in Legacy, I, I chose to play Death and Texas. I uh, looked especially at the GP Paris results, and I was expecting the decks that they did well there to, to uh, show up in large numbers at the Bizarre Maximum. And so that was Miracles and Buck Delva. And any Buck deck is very, very good for Death and Texas. And there is some... Uh, I guess controversy with the Desert Texas versus Miracles matchup. Some people think it's favored for Miracles, some think it's favored for Desert Texas. And I strongly believe that if you're a decent Desert Texas pilot and you're facing an average Miracles pilot, you are very much favored. And uh, so I chose Desert Texas for that tournament because I thought it was very well positioned. And I didn't make any extremely odd. Uh, Decisions about the deck, I don't think. I, I played Zero Spirit of the Labyrinth. I played one Brimus. I played an Enlightened Tudor sideboard. And uh, I had one buy for the tournament. And in the the second round, I played against Farmville, the Supreme Verity Force of Will Lands deck, which I beat pretty easily. And then I played Elves, which is by far the worst matchup for Dilton, Texas. And uh, I was hoping to not run into a lot of Elves, but I ran into Elves in round three and actually managed to win. And, uh, on the back of Avian Mind Sensor, which I I, I uh, almost cut both Avian Mind Sensors before the tournament because it's it's such a terrible card in most matchups. It's two one and it's just not really what you want to do. But against Elves, it's it's great if you can actually get to the three mana before they. I think Avian Mind Sensor was quite popular in the latest deck lists because of uh, evasion against uh, True Name Nemesis. Yes, okay. yes, match out on the uh, number of flyers. Yeah, the 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 deck has changed a lot since Rune Nemesis, and the addition of a bunch of flyers has been, uh, well, an important change to the to the deck. And but it's just it, it's it has evasion, which is great. But then you you I just cut it for Flicker Wisp, and then I cut a Brimus for a Mirror Crusader. Flicker Wisp is amazing in the deck, and I would much rather have that in most situations than an Aven Mind Sensor. Since uh, ideally Aven Mind Sensor should also stop Stoneforge from fetching equipment, but Stoneforge is almost always comes down on turn two, so it doesn't really stop them most of the time. Anyways, I actually managed to squeeze out a win against Ilves and, uh, well, won the match too. 
And uh, so I was 3 0, and then I ran into the mirror. And I think the mirror is extremely skill intensive. I actually mentioned on stream a couple of days ago that I think that Death in Texas is the mirror is as close as you come to chess in, in Legacy at least because it's all going on on the board basically. There's very few uh, surprises. There's, there's of course vials on different numbers that can surprise you, but most of the time the, the, the tricks are going on on the board. There's First Strike, there's Caracas, there's uh, Revoke, there's Mother Rooms, there's Flyers and so on and so forth. And uh, I think I'm definitely better than my opponent since he like misses stuff like bouncing my Thalia with Caracas. But in the end, I uh, I have him dead on board in game three, and then he uh, he draws a two outer and and uh, it will have leads to put me dead. I'm on four, and he has zero in there, so I lose there. And in the next round, I face Shadowsbuck, which I am uh, I I love that I got paired against that deck, and I'm he's almost dead in game one, and then he uh, plays Knights of Souls Betrayal. And main deck? Main deck. Main deck? <laughs> main deck, Nice of Souls Betrayal. And then all my Revoke up to my vault. <laughs> I have Correction Revoker, Flicker Wisp, Avian Mind Sensor, and Thalia in play, and he plays uh, Nice of Souls Betrayal. And then uh, I draw nothing but X1s and lose the game. Next game I get Null Rotted plus Gogai Charmed out of the game, and uh, that's it. Then I'm knocked out of Tawait, and I actually drop at 3 2 to like go get food and stuff because uh, we had trouble getting food on the first day because of, it was like a holiday or something. So I dropped it 3-2 and that uh, was my legacy portion. And Jean-Marie? Yeah, so I was already playing Tox uh, Charles Bug. I, I name it Toxic Agent now sometimes. Uh, before Nemesis came out, uh, it was my favorite deck at that time. So there were two pro two issues with Nemesis. Uh, I had some Planeswalkers, and uh, Nemesis can uh, you can block Nemesis attacking your Planeswalkers. That could be a problem. Lilayana 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 doesn't always kill it, uh, like if he if he has Stormforge or something like that. Uh, and second problem is that Nemesis uh, warped the metagame at the beginning into a much more combo-ish metagame. And uh, combo decks are what you really don't want to face, at least main deck and the way I, in the way I build, I build the deck. Uh, short after GP Paris, a friend of mine, Tristan, uh, told me he had good success with Sweet Toxic Deluge main deck. It felt like uh, a good compliment to Liliana to deal with uh, Nemesis without uh, playing uh, any targeted cards for it. By playing Deluge main, uh, you deal very well with the Swarm, so you can concentrate for the most part in the sideboard to on combo decks. And uh, since I have Deluge to deal with Swarm decks, uh, I could cut the Whip Flare I have been running. Uh, I don't know if you want to talk about it also. Uh, I could cut it and uh, test the white splash I wanted to play for a long time. Since Meddling Mage is uh, the card that is useful against uh, the wide range of combo decks that exist in Legacy, it's always good uh, as soon as you can cast it, or even if you just pitch it to Force of Will. 
So it was promising and uh, the decklist uh, worked out pretty well right from the beginning and uh, I just had to tweak it uh, after to to for the for the bomb. Okay. So now when you were at GP Paris and you top eighted the last time, you were playing Imperial Painter, correct? Correct. So what made you switch what made Imperial Painter a poor choice for you for the Bazaar Moxen? I don't think it was a poor choice, but I was really interested in uh, in Charles. Uh, I think the the main thing I could say about this is that, from my experience in Legacy, uh, it's very possible that the strongest deck or the strongest decks uh, are the least weak deck decks. Uh, Charles Buck has uh, very few angles of attack and uh, I mean against it there are very few angles of attack and there was the mana base but I even solved it uh, quite well not perfectly but quite well by playing two basics so uh, uh, on the other hand uh, Painter is uh, well there is a bit of variance a bit more variance with it like in every deck without uh, contrips and uh, I think people were expecting a bit it a bit more and uh, another change was that uh, Miracles which was a consideration at the time was no very big consideration and I'm not sure the, the matchup is that favorable I don't okay, okay. I think it's uh, maybe 50-50 I don't know, I, I didn't test much but I wasn't um, all on on, paint, on Painter for the GP Paris until uh, three days before the GP I, I never played the deck uh, before the trials in the GP Paris uh, I impressive. just figured out uh, it was uh, the perfect choice for the metagame I expected on day 2 like 2 or 3 days ago uh, before I mean so I have another question about your deck list so you played the one of Tombstalker, and I'm just wondering, uh, was that just because you didn't want to deluge, you just wanted another beater that had evasion and didn't get deluged away usually? With, uh, I don't like having too many answers uh, in general, and especially in a deck with uh, several Lilianas. Speak for, because you, if you want to plus one, you, you lose a removal. Uh, so it was... It seemed a good idea to add another Vrit to the deck. Uh, it could have been a Planeswalker, but the curve was already quite high. Uh, so we wanted a beater. Something that stays uh, if I play Deluge most of the time. And uh, Tombstalker was the best we could find. Uh, I think we have too few green sources for Scavenging Ooze. Uh, Trigon Predator is a possibility, but... Uh, uh, I like having a big fatty that can, uh, when it comes down, it just stops their, their attacks. It's It can block right away, so that uh, I have more chances to go into the long game, which you definitely want to do with Charles. Okay, and when you've been playing Toxic Deluge, how many times have you had to, say, get rid of your own Charles agents or Deathrite Shamans? Have you found that the collateral damage or possible collateral damage from Toxic Deluge is worth the risk? Uh, generally, you plan accordingly, so it's okay. But uh, in when you really need Deluge, like against Swarm Decks, like Death and Taxes, uh, even if you have like 
uh, Death Right and Charles in play, and there are three creatures in front of you from the opponent side. If you play Deluge, you you have a three cards against three cards. But even three cards against three cards is good for you because uh, the the longer is the game, the best it is for you because you have draw spells because you have uh, expensive spells like Jace because you have a Sylvan Library and the more you you play Shardless Agents, the better it is. I have to say, I really liked your inclusion of the basic lands. I know in my list that I test against, I've definitely put in you can, a couple uh, of basics. I, I, I had a forest in the sideboard in my Whip Flare version, and I really liked it, but it wasn't possible to play it with uh, Baleful Strix. With Deluge, you cut Strixes, because it's, not, it's a non-bow, so no, you can afford to play it. Did you ever get uh, Blood Moon in the entire tournament? Uh, round four, I faced a painter player, a pretty good player actually, and uh, it was two zero, uh, quite easy. Oh wow! I had every every, every good draws uh, I could have. Uh, any changes that you would make to this list? No, I was quite sure of the list uh, long before the bomb. Uh, I didn't. I stopped testing like three weeks before the the bomb because. Uh, uh, I was sure about the list, and I had to prepare uh, PT block constructed in Atlanta. Uh, and uh, after the tournament, I don't want to change anything. Excellent. Well, that's a good sign. Okay, so Julian wanted to talk about uh, two buys for a 10-round tournament. What, what were you thinking about that? Um, yeah, what I was looking at is, even before the tournament, um, it was announced that it was going to be like 10 rounds. And people are usually fine with having two or three buys because they're used to GPs where you have 15 rounds. But uh, if you look at it, if you only get 10 rounds, te uh, two or three buys, that's like 20 or 30% of the rounds already won. And even though um, Strawberry was the only one who had three buys because he won a trial at the last year. I think there, uh, there were two people, but uh, I'm not sure. Ah, okay. Yeah, I mean, for you, I'm actually in a way even fine because you're pr probably one of the top 10 legacy players in the world. So, <laughs> I mean, at least it wasn't some, some random person. But, I mean, if I want to talk about it in general, I feel that's almost too much. I mean, even two buys, and I had two buys, felt like kind of strange and unfair because with two buys, you only, only you see me make quotation marks in the air, um, you only have to win six rounds to get top eight. And some other persons have to like fight for two more rounds, and I feel it's kind of unjustified. I can I, I can see why they have that, because they wanna of, of course they wanna make money off the trials on Thursday, but I would actually be much happier if they only gave out like one buy for the winner of such trials and not have that amount of buys for such a more or less short tournament. Three buys was definitely an exception. Uh, if uh, they were giving three buys at the time, I, I won them. Uh, because they didn't know the formula they would apply for this bomb. Yeah, I talked to Kevin about it, and he he told me that they actually planned to have a two-day event, but after the bazaar in Paris, they decided that it wasn't really feasible, and they went back to the one tournament on one-day format. Mark, what do you think? I think that uh, I definitely think there's too many bias here, and it's not just because I lost in the finals of the trial, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I think giving. Having people just automatically having won already 20%, 20% or 30% of the rounds, I think that makes for an unfair advantage, uh, I feel like. 
Yeah, I mean, when I host events, I mean, I do buys for my events, and usually I only do one buy. I've never done two buys, because usually my events are six rounds, so, you know, having 16 and two-thirds percent win rate going in, that seems, that seems enough. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I agree, two buys is a bit too much uh, in the context of uh, just competitive play. But I think uh, there are other factors, and the fact that they can make money outside of the tournaments is definitely important if we want uh, them to organize more events like this. I think it's a concession we have to make, uh, even if it's maybe not optimal, to buy the drains much more players in the trials than one. That That's a good point. Um, what was it? Uh, yeah, also the the people getting buys are and playing in trials are often the more competitive people. So you have you have a competitive more competitive people at the top, I think, because they uh, they grind trials to try and get try and get buys. So there's definitely also a, a difference between the kind of players that that have buys uh, usually and the, the people that don't. Yeah, I think we're kind of all in agreement that buys. There's too many buys, but tournament organizers are looking to make a little bit of money. I mean, the prizes for this uh, legacy were actually, in my opinion, very good. It was what, Blackboarded set of power for first and Unlimited set of power for second? Yeah, usually always the same set of power because nobody takes it. <laughs> so I'm assuming that there was some sort of uh, cash uh, incentive or buyback? Yes, absolutely. the stall buys, the usually buys the set of power back. You don't have to confirm or deny, Jean Mary, if you took the power <laughs> or not. But uh... I even know the amount of money, but I guess we're not gonna <laughs> talk about that. <laughs> but generally speaking, about the South Moxon, it's kind of a shame that uh, they actually lost money. They lost money this year, and they lost money at the last South Moxon in Paris. And I, oh, really? yeah, they did. Um, on the last night, I had a talk with Kevin, who's kind of the head of the South Moxon. And he seemed, I don't want to say concerned, but he, he thought a lot about how to, I mean, establish... Increase revenue? Yeah, I mean, I think he's really dedicated about this, and it doesn't seem so much about revenue, but only in the way that he wants to be, he wants to have it sustainable in the long run. And what he kind of complained to me about is that people don't see how much legacy prices went up. Like, if you want to buy duels or whatever, you pay like double the price of some years ago. And they, of course, they increased the, the buy-in and the entry fee for the tournaments, but that doesn't really compensate for how much money they now have to spend to actually acquire the stuff. He even told me, like, for some prices, they actually have to find the prices, the dual lands or whatever, during the tournament to give them out. Because they are actually, yeah, it's getting harder and harder to get everything. And what he considers right now is to lower the entry fee back to like 35 euros for the main events but also decrease price support and i think it's going to be really hard to sell to people that price support is going to be decreased but looking at how much all the staples went up over the last years i think there's not a really not, not another way we can actually take so yeah. did they lose money on the main event or on the the bazaar uh, in the they lost money on the legacy main event 
because they expected like over 600. They said like 630, I believe, would have been okay, but it was like 500, whatever, and that's where they lost money. Well, I mean, in my opinion, here one of the problems is this. Because the cost increase in the prizes, when you advertise a prize pool, the prize pool is less because you have to assume that, you know, the amount of players is not going to go up double. You're not going to get double the amount of players in to support double the amount of, like, the cost increase in the prizes. So the problem is, so say, for example, I host a tournament, and this is actually the trouble we had recently. So if I plan, say, four months in advance, I say, okay, play set of underground seas. Okay. You know, at the time, that was like a $600 prize. There's no problem. You know, four months roll by, and you kind of go, oh, first, pl- first prize actually has to be changed to two underground seas. So how attractive is it for a player to come for a tournament where the first prize is two underground seas when in people's minds the price memory is so much less and it's much less attractive and people kind of don't realize that these cards cost a lot of money. Yeah, that's ex- exactly what I wanted to raise awareness for because if Kevin actually does what he, th- what he thinks about right now, which is to decrease price, I don't even want to say price support. He just wants to decrease prices so he can lower entry fees so that people don't act like out of the blue, oh my god, what's happening, this, this is awful, and actually like, have, th- have some thought about it before the next Bazaar of Moxen, what actually needs to change, because we all want to have this tournament, and it's really got to be sustainable, and I, honestly, for me, I feel I don't mind what the prices are like. I mean, if the entry fee goes down, and the prices kind of remain sustainable, and I win the whole thing, it's just going to be awesome, and I don't mind like winning 1,000 euros more or less, but that's, uh, that's just me. And, yeah, it would be really, really sad if people who could go to the Bazaar of Moxen wouldn't go because of a difference of, like, 20 euros for the entry fee or whatever. I mean, you pay, like, several hundred euros to get there and play. So if the entry fee is slightly higher, please still play. And if it's lower, also please still play. Like, like <laughs> don't give so much about price support because what I feel is, like, the Bazaar of Moxen is actually not going to rip anybody off on prices. And the splits they proposed, at least for the last Bazaar of Moxen in Paris, was, that was really fair. So, yeah, that's what I wanted to get out there. We also probably lost uh, some players by putting the main event on a Friday, uh, and uh, the Modern on the Saturday. If they, they probably should next year if put like the, the Vintage on Friday and the, the two most popular events for, um, formats into the weekend. That sounds reasonable. I also want to, to just mention, as a competitive player, uh, I would rather have them raise entry fees, fees than uh, than actually lower price support. Because, like, Bazaar Martin is one of the highest profile, if not the highest profile, eternal tournament in the world, and especially vintage also. And so people come for awesome prizes, and if you put in a lot of money to, to actually join the tournament, you, you can get much more out of it too, which I think is is what a competitive player, someone coming there to actually win the event, wouldn't mind paying extra. But of course, there's the the, the more casual appeal, which would be like lowering price support and and uh, lowering entry fees. One idea to keep the as many casual players as possible would be also to run small fees trials. So that people can uh, play for their money uh, for the whole weekend when they obviously don't want to, don't come to win. Mm-hmm. 
Also, I mean, I'm definitely in favor of raising price support. I mean, we pay how many hundreds of dollars for cards and people are going to complain about a 15 to $20 increase in an entry fee? Like, that's the thing I don't get to understand about a lot of players is, sure, you're willing to spend, like, four to $5,000 on a deck, but suddenly $20 is too expensive? I... Yeah, that's also a, a good point. People willing to travel uh, hundreds and sometimes thousands of kilometers to, to an event like the South Markson, they, uh, I think most, most are willing to pay uh, an additional fee for entry to the tournament. Okay. Um, I'm just trying to see... Because a lot of these stories, or a lot of these things that you listed, Julian, are just going to basically be you talking a lot. <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> what I thought. Like the other guys might have more stories. So, if you guys have any stories, if we want to start with Jean Mary, if you want to think of any stories, maybe funny things that happened, good things that happened, bad things that happened. Uh, I've been told one by a player. Uh, he was uh, playing in Legacy, uh, and his opponent goes. Turn zero ley line of anticipation. Uh, <laughs> he expects awesome. uh, like me to to face open lessons. Uh, I don't know if it's the English name. Yeah, it is. Okay, uh, but he goes like uh, turn one uh, end of turn ponder, turn two snare something, turn three end of turn top. Uh, the guy who told me the story goes. Uh, Painter for blue, uh, and the uh, guy goes uh, end of turn trinket page to get grindstone. <laughs> 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 That's pretty deep. <laughs> All right, I have uh, a little story. It was about uh, you mentioned misplays as a topic, Julian. Uh, I was playing a guy playing uh, Patriot Delva in in the deck Sideman, and he has two fetches out and a Tundra and a Wasteland. So I go end of turn in Mind Center, expecting him to fetch in response or something, or calm it or whatever. And he just says this resolve, okay, fine, I uh, I have Stoneforge on board. I know he, he flipped his Delver with Wear Tear, so I know that he has that. And then, But he has he doesn't have red mana without the fetches. And uh, so next turn, I end of turn put in a Sword of Fire and Ice with the Stoneforge. And then he uh, pauses in the end step, and then he puts both his fetches in the graveyard. Okay, I note the life totals. Uh, and then he grabs his deck and I tell him, no, uh, the top four. Then he reads Avon Mind Sensor. And okay, <laughs> then he starts looking at the top four and tanks for a while and then he puts them down. And uh, I tell him, okay, now shuffle and now try for the other fetch. So he just shuffles and presents the deck and he doesn't want to search again for some reason. So he's just completely wrecked by that Avon Mind Sensor. Now he's... He has Tundra Wasteland and he's getting destroyed by a sword. And yeah, that was. Uh, I ended up actually still losing to that guy, but I thought that was pretty funny. Oh, wow. Reading your opponent's cards, still a very good strategy in Legacy. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, for me, uh, if you want to hear like a strange story about kind of, I don't even want to call it a misplay. So, a friend of mine, he was playing this bug control list. He's got Chase and Play and two creatures, and the opponent is playing Merfolk. So the Merfolk player is like, okay, attack your chase. The chase was in five counters. So my friend just, he doesn't even understand the attacks, so because he didn't have Island Walk yet, he just blocks with two creatures, and the, the two Merfolk guys die, and would die, and chase would go down to two or three. So my friend wants to proceed, 
but the other guy, he's just like, huh. And my friend is like, okay, so these creatures trade, Chase goes down, is it my turn? And the other guy just keeps saying, huh, hmm. <laughs> so they eventually call a judge, and the judge comes over and asks, what's the problem? And the other guy is like, I attack Chase, and my opponent blocks. And then the judge is like, yes. And he's just like, huh. <laughs> <laughs> what? So, <laughs> yeah, it was so surreal. It's t totally unreal, because I didn't understand what was the problem. So uh, they talk about it for a while. And after that, it becomes apparent that the other guy didn't know that he could actually block when your planeswalker is being attacked. Oh, so, no. <laughs> uh, yeah, that was kind of a blowout for him. Um, on the next turn, he plays standstill and then attacks with Mujavo. L not on the next turn, Chase was already gone. And so at some point, he plays standstill and then attacks with the Mutavolt. My friend activates Mishra's Factory, blocks, and pumps it. And the other guy again is like, oh, huh. <laughs> so post combat he plays face lane and kills the factory. <laughs> that was that was awesome watching that. <laughs> well, he definitely learned something. You can tell the wheels were turning inside of his head, right? Oh, for sure. You could really you could really see. <laughs> you could see the smoke coming out as well. Oh yeah. <laughs> Especially since he won that match because he played three true name nemesis afterwards, and yeah, that's all she wrote. Any more stories before we? Well, stories. I mean, there are a lot of good stories. For example, about Niklas, who won the finals against Jean Marie. Niklas is a very, let's say, a good friend of mine, long-term magic friend of mine. And it's kind of funny because, like, two years ago, Niklas stopped playing Legacy. He was like this very committed, heavily invested Legacy dude who's now turned into a modern dude, which is so sad. But yeah, I guess that's he's he's still got it. He's still got it. And the night before the Legacy main event, he and his friends actually almost get kicked out of the hotel because they were partying so hard that I guess they didn't take Legacy as serious as we did. And yeah, so the morning he looks totally wasted. I ask him what's up and he tells me, yeah, they kicked us out of the hotel. Fortunately, they were allowed back in for one more night. And yeah, <laughs> that's Nicholas for you. So what ended up happening? Like he just threw the deck together? Uh, usually the, he and his friend David, they brew up a list like several days, maybe even weeks before the tournament and yeah, play what they like. That's what they did, what, what's it, what they did for the past Legacy GPs. Uh, for example, at the Bazaar of Mox in Paris, which was the last time Niklas actually played Legacy, he showed up to the tournament not willing to play in the Legacy main event. So we actually convinced him to still play Legacy. So he just put together some cards for a Murfolk deck and he came one win short of top eight in the Legacy main event. Which seems pretty good. Yeah, seems seems pretty decent. I just don't know how he didn't get hated out as a lone deck. I mean, Rest in Peace just really, really kills you. Yeah, but was Rest in Peace really that much of a big player for this tournament? I didn't think so. But if you're playing... You know, it was barely any I mean, if I were playing either Miracles or Death and Taxes, I'd be running two of in the sideboard. Yeah, two. <laughs> <laughs> That's not less two. I mean, people used to play main deck, rest in peace. Yeah, three DKs, and did you have uh, something in the sideboard to deal with rest in peace? Um, I don't have the list right here right now, but... Uh, I'm looking at his list right now. He ran Choke, Canonist, Leeline of the Void, Ancient Grudge, Caselli... So he ran one Caselli Pride Mage in the side to deal with it, and just the three Abrupt Decay in the main. And two Wizen Zenith. Yes. 
But honestly, but really, Graveyard Hate didn't strike me as one of the, the most played sideboard cards anyways. That's probably true. It's just Rest in Peace knocks out, you know, say you've built up a graveyard when you're playing Agrolome, which you usually do. But you can still, like, save your, lo save your loam with a cycle land, and then abrupt decay the Rest in Peace and keep going. It still hurts, but yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, did you want to talk to us about your cheating thing, Julian? Yeah, in the vintage, in the vintage main event. <laughs> oh man, that was... Oh, I hated that. I mean, I'm laughing about it now because the outcome was perfectly fine and nothing happened, but... So, I'm playing in the vintage main event. I borrowed a vintage deck from a friend of mine, and it's round 6, I believe. No, it's round 7. Round 8. I don't even know. I'm 5 and 2, 6 and 2, whatever. Like, in one of the last rounds. And I'm playing against the sky. Uh, I'm winning the first round, and before the second round, we actually get a deck check, like a mid-round deck check. It was the second deck check I got in the tournament, so I felt perfectly safe, and what could happen to me? I mean, my deck list has already been checked, so maybe he gets a game list, but whatever. So after like 10 minutes, um, Kim Warren, which is the recently level 4 European judge, um, walks up and asks me for an interview. So at that moment, I already felt like, huh, what's happening? I don't know. So we walk to the interview and she just casually asks, do you play a lot of vintage? And I don't know. And it really felt like something was up. And so I told her I had borrowed the deck and uh, she said it was pr going pretty well for me. But at like five or six and two, it didn't really feel like it was going well, but whatever. So the problem was um, she showed me my deck and there was a problem with the sleeves. And when I had borrowed the deck... A friend of mine had looked at the deck and he had told me, oh, it looks like you're using two different kind of sleeves. So I looked at the sleeves and I didn't see it. To me, it looked pretty much all the same. So to make sure I wouldn't get into trouble, I considered getting new sleeves. But uh, when I wanted to buy new sleeves, they didn't have KMCs. They only had Dragon Shields. And I really, really don't like... I, I mean, Dragon Shields are okay, but I, I love KMCs. So instead of buying the Dragon Shields... I walked to Jeremy, which is a level 3 judge um, I met earlier, like some years ago, and I asked him, hey Jeremy, can you take a look at my deck and tell me if I'm allowed to play these thieves? So he looks at the deck, he hands it to another judge, he also looks at the deck, and they tell me, yeah, no problem, thumbs up, you can play these thieves. So, yeah, I think in, in the end, it was kind of my really one of the things that got me out that I asked before about the sleeves so they actually trusted me on this because when Kim showed me the sleeves they showed me he sh she <laughs> I'm sorry showed me seven cards only the backs and she showed me how these sleeves are different because the very top was super flat and there was no wear on them like you have on 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 older sleeves so I feel like oh yeah you're right these sleeves look different and at that moment, I still feel like, yeah, okay, I'm so stupid, should have changed sleeves, so I'm gonna get a game loss, and then we c continue playing. But then, she flips over the sleeves, and it's four Forcefell and three Mental Misstep. And at that moment, I knew exactly that this was much more of a problem than I thought at first. Because that's basically all the free counter magic you have in my deck. And she also told me, well, this is a big problem. <laughs> and really, at that moment, I p just played Vintage like... like because it's vintage and you get to play it like once a year and I really didn't want to get into trouble and when she showed me these seven cards I felt like oh my god I, I wanted to throw up almost and I mean in the end we talked about it for like almost half an hour and she told me that she trusts me and she believes me that I didn't intentionally like mark these cards and it was just like so something she would have to give me a game loss for and that was I mean that was perfectly fine it's after all it's still my mistake that I 
signed up with a deck that had like Warren Sleeves and others were different. But, oh man, even thinking about it now, I really felt like, come on, w what's happening here? I can't believe this. Uh, yeah, so in the end, she tells me she will g have to give me a game loss and help me resleeve the deck. And when we are almost done resleeving the deck, and I think about going back to the match and play the last play the last game because then it would have been one one. Another judge comes over and tells me, "Yeah, by the way, your opponent had a decklist error and you won the match two and one." <laughs> and <laughs> at that moment, wow. I really yeah, it felt like. I did. I mean, I wanted to be happy because at that moment I was really happy that I didn't get into any further trouble. But also feeling happy felt kind of strange because I had just gotten a game loss and have been had been in this super strange situation. But yeah, uh, that's my bazaar of Mox and Vintage for you. I mean, in the end, I actually yeah. That reminds me sorry? of a story uh, from a friend of mine a few years ago in uh, Vintage. Uh, the the big uh, vintage tournament at the time. He buys new sleeves. He plays first round, second round deck check, disqualification for matte sleeves. Oh. He, in fact, he was playing uh, Ecoid, and uh, the only cards that were tapped uh, were the Baghdad, the Bazaar of Baghdad, and uh, like the table. Uh, must have been like uh, not really clean, and uh, they, they were all four marks. Oh, that's so unlucky. That's something to to watch out for. That happened to me at uh, GP Providence, not the exact same. But basically, I had bought two packs of Ultra Pro sleeves from one of the vendors, and I didn't notice that they weren't exactly the same size. So when I sleeved my deck up, I shuffled it and whatever. Then I got a deck check, maybe round five. And they're like, yeah, your sleeves are marked. What's like, what's going on? And I'm like, I just bought them from the vendor. So, of course, they're like, well, you need to change your sleeves. Buy new sleeves. So I went back to the vendor, and I'm like, well, I need two of the same size sleeves. And he's just like, eh, well, you know, sometimes some are cut one way, some are cut another. I can't guarantee <laughs> anything. <laughs> and I said, well, can I at least open them up and, like, check to see to make sure the same thing? No, you open them, you bought them. I'm like, ugh. That uh, was pretty terrible. That's kind of awful, considering that you're like at a competitive event, and he's there to provide tournament material, and then he's just like, "Yeah, whatever." <laughs> <laughs> so complacent, just like just gives zero shits about me. He's just like, "You get uh, disqualified, nah, whatever. Your five dollars doesn't matter to me." Oh man. So, uh, how was the security at Bazaar Moxon? Pretty good, I guess. I feel there was there were no issues really. Did you encounter anything? I didn't hear about any problem. Yeah, I mean, yeah. That's because we have Mr. Blonde. <laughs> you know that guy? He's at all the big tournaments, and to me, he's like Mr. Blonde from now on. He's got this blonde ponytail, he's... And, I mean, I guess he's doing a pretty good job, because there's never really any kind of problem, so... Hooray for Mr. B Mr. Blonde. <laughs> <laughs> I guess he just intimidates everyone into uh, not stealing each other's decks. Probably. <laughs> So, did you guys play against, like, any of you play against, like, a really pimped-out deck at all? Or did you play a really pimped-out deck? Well, I, uh, the Dentex the guy I played, his friend was also playing Dentex, and he had the deck foiled out. And foil ports and foil ways and stuff, that's a little spicy, and foil stone forges and stuff. And it made me want to foil out Dentexes too, actually. So I think I'm going to work on that for the next months. Yeah, for me, it's Elves. Elves is pretty much pimped out, um, except for the fetch lands, 
because pumping out nine fetch lands is like an additional 1,000 euros. N maybe not 1,000, but almost. And but except for the fetch lands, I mean, even the Gaia's cradles and stuff is foil, so it looks pretty cool. I like it. I'm not into this kind of thing, so I, I don't even remember if I faced one. Uh, I probably didn't even notice. Uh. <laughs> I'm <laughs> like in the match in the game, and that's all. Somebody plays something like super insane against you, and you're just like, meh, not impressed. <laughs> in Vintage, somebody played beta underground seas and summer basic lands against me. And that was really impressive. I mean, I still won because he didn't know the rules of the game despite spending like <laughs> like the amount of money it takes to buy a new car on his deck but yeah it was really really impressive don't you hate that though like somebody's like oh i can't play at all and them just it's like you know those kids back in like high school who had like the most expensive clothes and they were just like the most uncoordinated and awful people in the world do you know what no i don't i don't hate that I, I don't even mind it i mean if i'm better than my opponent and i win i don't care oh, what the deck looks like yeah. I mean, he, he got uh, the guy, he must have been playing Vintage for ages. He told me he was a Vintage expert. He played Chuckmoth Will, played a cantrip, fizzled on the cantrip, and then after thinking about it for a while, he tried to cycle rebuild from the graveyard. And <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's not possible. I told him I, I have concerns about that, but he was like, no, 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 I'm a Vintage expert, no problem, that's possible. <laughs> so I, I don't know, maybe we should call a touch. No, we don't have to call a touch. I guess now we have to call a touch. <laughs> <laughs> So it turns out you're not allowed to do that. Yeah, yeah, part of the cost is discarding. Yeah, it's also, it's you like can, the, Chuck Moth will say, you may play or cast or whatever, yeah. and cycling is never playing, so, yeah. yeah. But, I mean, I, I don't want to say I had problems with people in Vintage about rules, but I definitely recognize that there's certainly a lack of awareness for the new trigger policies. And usually I hate being, like, rules lawyering, lawyering my, peop uh, my opponents about triggers, but especially when you're playing like the vintage main event and there's quite a lot of money on the line after all. When people don't stack their triggers correctly or not at all, I'm not allow for a take I'm not gonna allow for a take back. And it came up especially with that confidence when when you have that confident and your opponent has tangle wire. And I had never encountered that inter in, uh, that interaction before, but it was became apparent to me that when I put that confident on the stack and I ask for whether that confident resolves, and he says yes, that he can't put Tanglewire on the stack anymore because of active player, non-active player. And yeah. like all my stack's opponents, they misplayed this. And it felt so awful because it felt like, like hurting uh, a helpless child that didn't know what happened because I told him, no, you cannot put Tanglewire on the stack anymore. And he didn't understand. But I also didn't tell him to call a judge if he doesn't understand, because he agreed that he couldn't put Tanglewire on the stack, he, although he didn't really know why. So on the next turn, I put that confidant on the stack again, I resolve it, he says yes, I reveal, and then he wants to put Tanglewire on the stack, and again he didn't understand, it felt so it really it felt so awful, because this guy, you could clearly tell that he was only playing for fun, and he completely didn't understand what's going on, but, ah, really, that... It hurts me in a way, like deep down in my soul as a Magic player, because I think, I don't know, this is not the optimal way to play Magic with the yeah. current trigger policies, but I think we shouldn't really get about talk, uh, get into too much of a talk about triggers. But, ah, these people, they come to the Bazaar of Moxon, they want to have fun, they want to meet their friends, and they just want to casually play, but if I top 8 and I win, I win like a lot of money. So, I, I can't really give him the edge of 
not knowing rules and still getting away with it. So I feel bad about it, but but I guess that's you. You have to do it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, but uh, Sean, I don't know if you guys read, but Sean, the other host of our cast, was talking about how he was watching footage and saw some stacks player who was continually oops missing his like uh, lodestone golem slash sphere triggers and watching his opponent pay for stuff. <laughs> So obviously knowing that this sphere is still working, just, oh, very casually just casting things. So that's uh, every time you, that's game rule violation. So every time you cast, you pay too little for a spell, you, uh, you'll get a warning. So that should be, that should add up to, to a game loss pretty quickly. And didn't uh, Levy get out of the commentator stand to go tell a floor judge to do their job? Yeah, I heard that. I heard like he stood up, ran over and interrupted the match. I didn't see it, but I heard about that. Yeah, so I think people are a little bit complacent maybe in... I don't know, maybe it's just vintage specifically, because it's kind of the... kind of, oh, this format's expensive and I've played this forever. You know, let's just play very casually. And I, and like Julian was saying, I don't think that's the way to do it in any format, especially when there's, you know, four digits worth of uh, prizes on the line. Uh, that you Now that you mentioned four digits, it's kind of funny, because uh, when the top eight of the Vintage Main Event was announced, people were asked whether they want to split. And the money they offered for the split was like, I think, 450 euros for everyone in the top eight. And one of the guys, he came up to us and he asked us, is this enough? And Philip Schoeniger, who was also traveling with us, he was like, oh my god, you have to go for it. Oh, this is insane. Take that split. Take it, take it, take it. And I've had like, well, 540 euros, it's okay. You can still play for it. And Philip was like, no, you'd have to take it. It's it's insane. And I felt like, okay, he seems <laughs> really sure about this. I don't know. Okay, maybe you should do it. So it turns out Philip just misread was what was written on, on the piece of paper. He thought it was like 4,500 euros. <laughs> 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 That's insane. And and he totally talked the guy into accept, uh, accepting the split. So <laughs> I, I don't know what happened to Philip if he thinks like 4,500 euros is a split for top eight <laughs> in vintage. <laughs> yeah, the yeah the thirty-two thousand dollar purse or thirty-two thousand euro purse. Yeah, uh huh. <laughs> oh man. <laughs> so, what do you guys think the future of Bizarre Moxon is? Because I know Julian was saying he talked with the event organizer, but you guys were there. Is it growing? Is it decreasing? And it was about the same number in legacy as as the last Bizarre Moxon match. No, the last Bizarre Moxon was yeah the last Bizarre Moxon was like seven hundred. And this was like 500, I don't know, 30? I think att attendance since uh, Legacy is very slowly decreasing, but very slowly, and Modern is rising. So I think Modern is the future of Bazaar of Moxen. But uh, no, I don't think we have to worry too much about Legacy being uh, a big format in it, or not being. Decreasing is what you're saying, yeah. Yeah, yeah it's decreasing a bit. But uh, there was like a, a bigger drop this year, but uh, I think it's really linked to the choice of putting Main Event Legacy on fire. Julian? Yeah, um, I talked to Kevin about this, as I mentioned, and he really wants to get like a second Bazaar of Moxon going at some point again. But Paris is just not sustainable money-wise, because without the support of Wizards of the Coast, who helped um, host the GP Paris, 
Uh, they can't really do it on their own. Yeah, the, so the, the places are very expensive. Uh. Yeah, so Kevin talked to me about, May because the Basar of Moxen crew, they are also organizing the GP Strasbourg later this year. He mentioned that they might do something during the bus, uh, during GP Strasbourg, like an eternal event, but he didn't really sound too sure about it. So don't put, I mean, don't put me up for that. I'm not sure if that's going to happen. But he, from what I feel, he really wants to keep going and grow and and like be keep. I don't know it sounds strange. Keep being the Basar of Moxen, like this big traditional, super classic, cool eternal event. That basically all the Americans envy us for, and we envy them for the Star City game series. So I guess <laughs> that's okay. But I wouldn't wouldn't feel like Basar of Moxen is dying, as some people might have thought. It's just like we have to find a new formula for prices and entry fees, and the way the tournament gets organized, like which days. And Friday was definitely a problem. And they, the Basar of Moxen crew, they know them that themselves. So yeah. I'm quite optimistic about the future of Bazaar of Moxen, honestly. Awesome. Any closing statements, comments, anything about Bazaar of Moxen or legacy in general? I wonder if we could uh, organize it abroad, outside of France, like in Belgium. Or maybe we could uh, put cash prizes in, uh, in other countries because uh, I think uh, the, the legislation is what uh, prevents that in France. Yeah, that could be interesting. I mean, I definitely think I would be interested in having a... I mean, even though there's Eternal Weekend in North America, I still think having, you know, a Bazaar of Moxen type thing would still be... In addition to that, would be nice, especially on the West Coast. A lot of the uh, legacy events or big legacy events in North America are, are always, always on the East Coast, and it's kind of not fair. So it'd be nice to definitely have something like that maybe in California or something like that, so... Or Vancouver. Yeah, or Vancouver. <laughs> well, I'm I'm working on it. Okay, we're getting up there. There's also Danish Legacy Masters this weekend, actually, and I think that will uh, that has continued to grow. Last time we were 130 people, and uh, that's depending on. I mean, they're pretty serious about it, the organizers. But depending on uh, a lot of things, I guess uh, that will continue to grow, which I think is exciting, especially for for well, the Scandinavian um, or Nordic. Uh, legacy community. Yeah, I wish I could go, but I'm going to GP Warsaw. But that should definitely be an awesome tournament for you guys. Yeah. yeah. There's also gonna be a big eternal event in Prague. The, I, I feel it's the first weekend of July, and they're also hosting a, a legacy, modern, and I also believe vintage tournament. And Prague or Wall is pretty cheap, so if you're anywhere near, uh, you should definitely check that out. I definitely love to go to that, but scheduling conflicts already. <laughs> I just wanted uh, I think we should also mention that, that Mark was partnered on Twitch which is awesome he, he really deserves it <laughs> okay yeah uh, we should definitely that, mention that is that worth mentioning <laughs> oh fuck uh, you know how many people tune in just to hear you no <laughs> <I don't, laughs> at least two or three <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's what I think at least two or three <laughs> I think maybe we'll leave the uh, you talking about noble fish for another day We'll have yeah, you back sure. on, and we'll talk about that another time. Sure. Uh, okay, well, I just wanted to say thank you very much to our guests, uh, Julian, Mark, and Jean-Mary, and I'll let them have their outro. So, oh yeah, Jean-Marie, go first. <laughs> what do you want me to say? Thanks Thanks for having me. Great to be here. Well, it was a pleasure uh, talking with you guys. See you maybe uh, in another show. Mark? 
Yeah, uh, thanks for having me. It was. Uh, I hope to be back soon at some point. Okay, thanks for having me on as well. And yeah, so <laughs> I don't know what to say. Um, I'll definitely be back with some more elf streaming uh, later this month. And yeah, see you next time. Feedback is always appreciated. Email us at everydayeternalcast at gmail.com. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash everydayeternalpodcast. Or follow us on Twitter at eternalmtg.com.